0: Amen. Thank you, Heather. Great thought. Good job. Um, go ahead and get in your Bible Romans 13. By the way, while, while you're getting there, I missed something this morning. Uh, as you know, I'm trying to make a big deal about anybody who's been here 10 years. Uh, if, you know, if you've been around a biblical church uh, any length of time, one of the things you learn is that uh, for good and bad reasons, people come and go. And so for somebody to stay 10 years, it's a, it's a huge deal. Uh, Jim and Carla McTaggart, in December, reached their 10-year remark. If you would, give them a hand. Here, Joe. (laughs) That's a mark of endurance, putting up with me for 10 years. It is. I had Carla, she was a teenager. If you want to know what kind of a troublemaker she was, talk to me after service. Romans chapter 13. As you could imagine, Carla would have been quite the troublemaker. <laughs> We're a little past uh, halfway point in our Sunday night uh, series on Bible Doctrine. My goal in this series is that as a church family, we would become people who understand why we believe what we believe. Uh, Sunday night, is, it, it's our church family service, and so uh, this is always extra special to me and uh, we have committed Christians, uh, faithful Christians, who just come in Sunday mornings. But um, if you come back on Sunday night, I, I do know that you're more serious about your faith. You're more serious about the Lord's church here. And, and I want to help you in a special way and deepen your faith. Because Christian growth begins by learning what uh, the Bible teaches to be sound doctrine. Christian growth and wisdom, though, continue uh, when we learn why we believe what we believe. And I think as everyone here is quite aware of Uh, Christianity in America around us uh, has in recent decades become increasingly ignorant of key Bible doctrines. And unfortunately, when you become ignorant of Bible doctrine, it makes you more unstable in your spiritual life. And I want you to be stable. And so we're learning sound Bible doctrine. Two Sunday nights ago, we began talking about biblical separation. We talked about the clear command for Christian people to separate from unbelievers and from the world. Uh, Satan is the God, small g of this world. Uh, This world operates on his value system. And we talked about biblical separation, not just being one directional. We don't separate only from the world. We separate from the world unto God and the gospel. And it is not biblical separation unless we do both. And then last week we continued talking about biblical separation, and we talked about ecclesiastical separation. Ecclesiastical separation is the separation of churches from other churches and believers from other believers because of key Bible doctrines that are either ignored or willfully defied. And some of the divisions among uh, those of us who believe they're petty, uh, they have nothing whatsoever to do with key Bible doctrines, and to be quite frank, we need to learn how to get along and play nice. Uh, But there are other divisions, uh, other things over which we uh, break from other believers, and they are over key doctrines, and Christ never intended uh, all of His people to be united physically or one physically until we assemble with Him uh, someday in heaven. Now, As I mentioned in each of these, uh, this doctrine is not a doctrine by and large that's taught in American Christianity today uh, much at all, Uh, but understand that if we as parents uh, fail in this area of personal separation or ecclesiastical separation in either direction, uh, we ignore it or we overemphasize it, understand the people that will be hurt most is the next generation. And if you don't believe that, uh, read the first two chapters of the book of Judges when a group of faithful believers in Jehovah went into the promised land and they failed to separate from the people of the land and the religion of the land and the next generation, literally one generation, uh, they were ruined uh, because of it. And so uh, I especially uh, call you to arms who are parents here uh, tonight. Uh, Tonight I want to talk about a third aspect of biblical separation, uh, and this aspect of separation is linked with uh, government. We've spent uh, several weeks in the past talking about uh, the biblical role and purpose of government. We've spent several weeks in the past talking about the biblical role and purpose of the Lord's Church. Tonight, I want to address the link between those two roles to help us understand what is often today called the separation of church and state. Now, I use the phrase separation of church and state, understanding that it is not uh, a phrase that appears in the First Amendment of our Constitution. Uh, Some people, when they speak about separation of church and state, they act like uh, that phrase is a part of our Constitution. It is not. Uh, The First Amendment prohibits our government from making any law establishing a religion or prohibiting the free expression of a religion. The phrase separation of church and state uh, basically traces back to Thomas Jefferson and a letter he wrote on January 1st of 1802 to the Danbury Baptist Association in Connecticut. That's actually where the phrase comes from. But... Since we are studying the issue of biblical separation, uh, that subject does bring up a good question. Should there be a separation of the church and state? Or is it okay for the church and state to be linked? I mean, For instance, if Fairfield came to Bible Baptist Church and said, you know what, Uh, we really like what you're doing over there, we would like you to be responsible for our court system. Should we do that? Suppose the city of Fairfield came to us and said, listen, we would like you as a church, we've heard what you do, we've seen the kind of people that go there, we would like you to be in charge of our police department. Should we do that? Those are good questions. And understand that throughout history, there have been a lot of different denominational groups of Christians who have linked themselves with government. Baptists have never done so. And every time in history, when some particular group of Christians linked themselves with government, in the end, they ended up, not surprisingly, persecuting and taxing other Christian groups. In fact, failing to understand this doctrine of biblical separation with the government has caused some people on the other end of the spectrum to try to tell us that Christian people shouldn't even be allowed to serve in government. Is that right? Should there be a separation of church and state? Is it okay for the state and the church to be linked? It's a great question. And it's in keeping with our subject. So if you would stand tonight, if you are able to stand in honor of the Word of God, I need to do something here. My sinuses are better. Uh, My Sunday school class advised me to try DayQuil and Claritin and uh, drops of iodine and nose spray. And I got all kinds of advice, everything from cloves of garlic up my nose. I tried a wal this morning, or that's a Walgreens version of Claritin, and I'm not sure if it helped. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, we're going to talk about the separation of church and state. Romans 13.1 says, Let every soul... Be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God, the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. They that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Thank you, You might be seated. If we're ever going to understand this issue of separation of church and state, we must understand first uh, the role God intended for human government. Understand, God is the one that instituted human government. Uh, God is the one who instituted the home. Uh, God is the one who instituted the church. And so if we're going to properly understand the separation of the church and state from a biblical understanding, we must first understand what God intended for human government. Now some people make the mistake of applying the teaching of Jesus Christ to human government. But hear me when I say Jesus did not come the first time to establish a government. He came the first time to fulfill the Scriptures, to suffer and die for our sins, because that's what the Old Testament promises. And so if you go to the teaching of Jesus to try to find out how government should operate, you are always going to come to the wrong conclusions. That's not what he was doing when he was here. He came to die. Government is not supposed to be meek. (laughs) A government is supposed to be strong. Jesus himself said, a strong man armed to keep his goods in peace in Luke 11:21, 21. Believers are supposed to be meek. A government is not supposed to be meek. Government is supposed to be characterized by justice rather than being merciful. A human government is established according to 1 Peter 2:12, quote, for the punishment of evildoers. Listen, as believers, it is not our job anywhere outside of our children that parents have authority over, or someone who is an agent of the government, it is not our job to punish evildoers. You and I, as Christian people, we're supposed to be merciful, gracious, kind, and loving. It is the government's job, however, to punish evildoers. And though there are a few snippets about human government in the New Testament, we just read one of them, the New Testament is not written to establish a government. It is written to teach the people of God how to live and to show us what Christ is looking for from his churches. If you and I want to understand our creator's purpose for human government, we must study the two governments God established. The first government God established was the government of the nation of Israel. They were slaves in the nation of Israel in Egypt. They didn't have a government. When God delivered them from bondage, he established a government for them there in the wilderness. Uh, The other other government that God established, that one was in the past. The other government God will is in the future. And that's the kingdom of Christ. When Jesus Christ returns as King of Kings and rules for a thousand years, God is going to establish a government. And so if we want to know about government, we have to look to those two things rather than the teaching of Jesus. Now the scripture we just read together, I think is the longest and clearest single section in the New Testament to believers about human government. Notice in verse 1, it says there, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, the powers that be are ordained of God. Notice we learn that God allows or causes every government and every human leader. Now some of these governments and governors in history have been good, Uh, others have been very evil and oppressive. You, may, uh, you and I may, may not like it, but God has given us the leaders in Ohio and Columbus that we likely deserve. We may not like it, in fact I think most of us dislike it, uh, but the leaders we have in Washington, God allowed them there and we don't like what they're doing. But God put them there and likely God put them there because we're getting the leaders we deserve because quite frankly, the leaders we have both in Columbus and Washington are the kind of leaders most of America wants to have. Uh, If you hadn't ever picked up on the fact an evil leader is a judgment from God. We also learn in this particular section of Scripture that government is supposed to be a terror. To those who do evil, not to those who do good. Look at the beginning of verse 3. It says, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. See, God defines what's good and what's evil. You you and I don't have the moral authority to decide right and wrong, moral and moral. Our Creator does. Uh, God defines that. Uh, This past week. There was a uh, journalist from England who was in China reporting on the riots that are going on there, and the Chinese government seized him, beat him, jailed him, and shipped him back. Their explanation to the Brits over why they did that is they didn't want him to get COVID from the crowd. Uh, Listen. If you understand how God defines good and God defines evil, then you know that that is not a government acting in a manner God wants government to act. They are supposed to be a terror to those who do evil, not to those who do good. By the way, because of this principle, that's basically why America righteously entered the Revolutionary War. Because of this principle, this this is basically why it was a just cause for America to enter World War II. It's because of this principle that it is a just cause for America to still wage war on terrorists in our world. Government is supposed to be a terror to those who do evil, not to those who do good. Notice, it's not just that, at the end of verse 3 it says this, It says, do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. We learn here, government is supposed to praise that which is good. It's not just a terror to evil and not to that which is good. They're supposed to praise that which is good as God defines good. By the way, that's why it's a good thing for the government to give charitable deductions from our taxes to good causes. That's a biblical principle. That's why it's a good thing for our government to support freedom, not just in America, but anywhere where people are being oppressed. It's a principle of government that they would praise that which is good. We notice also in verse 4, government is supposed to execute wrath against him that doeth evil in God's stead. Look at verse 4. For he is the minister, that's the, the government. He is the minister of God to thee for good, But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Listen, any representative of a rightful government, including believers who are policemen or soldiers or judges or politicians, they are placed there by God to punish evildoers, to bear the sword against them. Uh, Listen, as individual believers, that's not our job to bear the sword against evildoers. That's not our job. That is the job of government. We're merciful, gracious, kind, loving. Now we spent five Sunday evenings talking in detail about the biblical purpose of human government and if you weren't here for them, they're on our website, they're on our podcast and we learned in that as we studied in detail the government of the nation of Israel and the government during the millennial kingdom of Christ, we learned that government should be valuing justice and the rule of law, that government should respect individual freedom, that government should value human life and personal property. That government should promote and reward righteousness. Now now I'm not personally interested so much in what the Republicans or the Democrats or the Libertarians say. I'm interested, quite frankly, in our Creator's viewpoint of government. And whenever any of those groups, by whatever name, whenever they are for something that is According to a principle for human government, our Creator established, I'm for it. Whoever's doing it. And whoever is not doing it or fighting against it, I'm fighting against them. Because I am supposed to, as are you, if you know Christ as Savior, to represent what He wants in our world, not what I want. Uh, Of course. I know God wants uh, us and wants the whole world to know what it takes to be forgiven. Of course. That's our primary purpose. But God also has a plan for human government because He doesn't want people oppressed. I mean, understand that man has been running this place for a long time, and it's not going well. And the more uh, any government models a government and principles for government given by our Creator, the better off we will be. That's God's purpose for government. Go to your Bible to Matthew chapter 28. And, and basically all we're, we're doing is laying a foundation to get to our thought uh, because we spent weeks on the details of government, we spent weeks on the details of the role of the church. And we can't even answer the question, what is this link supposed to be between the government and the church, between the state and the church? Uh, if we don't know what God's purpose for those two uh, organizations, those two institutions are. Uh, We have done this many times, and we will keep doing it many times, because I want this deeply implanted in your mind and in your heart. Uh, Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. Notice the audience for what's about to happen. Eleven true disciples. Apostles. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Verse 18, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. How much power is given to Jesus in heaven and in earth? Okay, that is a significant thing. Jesus has all the authority both in heaven and in earth, because notice verse 28 is going to begin. Uh, verse 19, I'm sorry, sorry is going to begin. Go ye therefore. Remember, when therefore is there, you ask what it's there for. Therefore, like wherefore, is a linking word. It links what was previously said with what it follows. Because Jesus of Nazareth has all power, all authority in heaven and earth, notice what is called the Great Commission. Verse 19, go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now this is often called the Great Commission. There's actually a different version of this, because in each of the four Gospels, and early in the book of Acts, because Jesus gave His disciples this commission five separate times. It's not that Jesus did this once and it's repeated by each of the Gospel authors, which is fine. Uh, on five separate occasions after His resurrection, He gave His church this commission. Jesus started the church and this is the commission He gave to the church before He left. Notice that the Great Commission begins with a method of ministry. Verse 19, Go ye uh, If you've ever heard anybody say, uh, our message never changes, but our methods change, understand that's a deceptive statement and half true at best. Uh, Our methods, if they're not biblical methods, those can change. But there are some methods that are biblical methods, and those should never change. It is a biblical method given by Jesus that His church is supposed to go. That's a biblical method. Any church that says, well, I don't need to go anymore. I'm going to send my money. We're going to just have people come here. That is contrary to the mission for the Lord's church. Our mission begins with a method of ministry. Go. Notice it continues with a message to teach. He says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. Teach all nations. It is not a command to teach all nations how to fish. It is not a command to teach all nations how to have better small businesses. It is not a command to teach all nations how to find water. It is a command to teach all nations that the Bible is the Word of God, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, that salvation is by the grace of God. That is our first message to the entire world, and everything else is secondary under that. It is a command of Christ We are to teach that message to all nations. All nations, including all Americans, need to hear the message that Jesus saves. This Great Commission then continues with a first step of obedience. Notice what that step of obedience is, baptizing them in verse 19, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Uh, If the church is commanded to baptize, it only makes sense that those of us who believe are commanded to be baptized. We spent a week on that. A Bible baptism is a first step of obedience for believers in Jesus Christ in the Great Commission. And if you study and read through the book of Acts, you will constantly and consistently see believers soon or shortly after they believed in Jesus Christ to obey Him in baptism. Biblical baptism is by immersion as a symbol of the death, burial, and Jesus after you have believed on Him as Savior. Anything else is not biblical baptism. I don't care how many millions of people call sprinkling babies baptism. That's not baptism. I don't care how many denominational groups call being immersed as part of your salvation. That's not biblical baptism. I don't care how many groups say that being baptized is the way you receive the Holy Ghost and get the spiritual gift of tongues. I don't care how many groups say that. That is not biblical baptism. Biblical baptism, 100% of the time, always is simply this. It is immersion in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost as a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that you do after you have believed in Him. And it is our command as a church to do that. Notice it concludes with what I think most churches find to be the most difficult part of this commission. Listen, it is way easier to find people and tell them about Jesus than it is to teach believers all things that Jesus taught. And that's how the commission concludes. He says in verse 20, teaching them to observe the gospel. Is that what it says? It says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And Lord, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Listen, it is our job as a church, and my job in particular as a spiritual leader here, to teach you all the things that Jesus said. Now you might have came this morning and thought to yourself, I don't really like coming to church and hearing a message on justice. But that's a part of all things that we're supposed to teach. Listen, it is way easier if we would just come every week, have our emotions stirred, and talk about our love for our spouse, and our love for our kids, and our love for our grandkids, and all that stuff. It, that's a wonderful thing, and that has it place. But understand, all things is more than that. You and I as biblical Christians and as a biblical church have commissioned by Christ to teach believers all things. We first teach the gospel because it is essential to salvation and then we continue to teach all the counsel of God because if you only teach the gospel that produces shallow and biblically ignorant followers of Jesus who are susceptible to deception from our spiritual enemy. The church is the Lord's church. It is His to direct. It is His to decide our purpose and our mission. And we covered all this in detail several months ago in this series on Sound Doctrine. So it's pretty obvious as we look at the purpose for human government and we look at the Lord's purpose for His church that these two institutions are very different. I mean, one's purpose is to bear the sword against evildoers. The other is to go with the gospel of the world. The purpose of one is to support that which God calls good and right. The other to baptize those who believe in Christ. The purpose of one is to value life and promote freedom. The other's purpose is to teach believers what Christ taught us. And so if we begin to think about this, since the purpose of these two institutions, as God established them, is very different Number one, there should be some kind of separation of church and state. Separation between the churches and the government. It doesn't matter if the phrase is in our constitution. It doesn't matter that it was first penned by Thomas Jefferson. Listen, as a follower of Jesus, you and I should be pushing God's constitution and God's view before any of the laws of man. Listen, we keep the laws of man when they don't conflict with the laws of God. But wherever they conflict, we ought to obey God rather than men. I hope Christ tarries and if it ever comes to that. I'm willing to go to jail for that. The question really would be, would you still come? Would you still assemble if they were threatening your job? Would you still assemble if they were threatening your personal property? Would you still assemble? It's a good question. I think all of us wish and would like to think if that day ever comes, we'd have the courage to stand. By the way, those are the environments early in the book of Acts that all the Christians lived under. I hope we'd all find grace to do what we ought to do. So since church and government have two distinct purposes, they should be separate. Now understand, separation is not the separation of government from God. God is the one who gave government its authority and the church its mission. And so to take Jehovah and his laws out of schools or courtrooms or assemblies of our leaders, it does not please God. God is not looking for him to be separated from government. The founders of our country understood this. Read anything about history, even a basic view of it, and you'll learn that whenever they assembled to form the basic documents of our country, they had prayer before they met. They at times broke and fasted and prayed before they took the next step. Listen, they didn't have the same view of how Christianity should be practiced. They didn't even all have the same view of Jesus of Nazareth. But they did all believe that we had a Creator and that the Bible to one degree or another was the Word of God and that the God was the God of the Bible. It's not separation of the government from God. Separation is not the separation of Christian people from government. Listen, Christian people can and should work in government if God has gifted and called you to do that. I mean, why not? Why are Christians only allowed to work in in factories or offices or or outside? Why? why? There's no reason. Wherever God has gifted and called you and I to work and to provide for our family and wherever He's gifted us, it's a good thing when we keep Christ as our priority. And government has no business excluding Christian people. And whenever somebody stands up and says, well, you shouldn't be able to serve in that office because you believe the Bible and you have faith in Christ, listen, that's out of line. Separation of the church and government does mean that as a church, we never allow the government to tell us how to practice our faith. That's not their business. They have no business telling us how to follow Jesus Christ They have no business telling us why the church is here. They have no business telling us what we should be doing to to, to practice our faith. Listen, the government has an idea about what the church should be doing. They're just fine as long as we feed the hungry and clothe the naked and, and help the needy. They don't want our message. They don't get to decide that. We have a commission from our Savior to take our message to this world. Not only do they never get to tell us how we follow our faith in Christ, they also, it does mean that as a church, we never accept money from the government. Listen, when the government gives you money, they want to tell you how to spend it. Uh, I believe it is wrong for the government to forcibly take money from one citizen to give to a church or religious organization to do something. The work of God here should be financed by God's people. That's the reason that our people, when we have events, you're not allowed to go to Skyline and ask for free stuff. We're not here to take stuff from local businesses. We're here to give things to them. You say, well, Brother Wally, if you would go, they would give you free skyline things and they would give you free... They would, but that's not why we're here. We we, we don't want anybody in our community to say, oh no, here come the Bible Baptist people. I wonder, they're going to want stuff again. Listen, God's work at Bible Baptist Church is supposed to be financed by God's people. And any time the government gives you money, they want to tell you how to spend it, And we don't want to be told how to spend the money. (laughs) We submit to their right to decide what's safe in public buildings and parking lots, laws bearing the sword against evildoers. But if government tells us to do anything contrary to what our God has said, we obey God rather than men. Say, Brother Wally, you mean, if the city of Fairfield came to you and said we'll give you one of our buses, what would you do? my first question would be what kind of strings are attached to it? What do you want? Say, why? Because there's a separation between church and state. We don't have the same purpose. Separation of church and government does mean that we as a church, we never accept an invitation for our church to run any aspect of government. Listen, individual Christians can run any aspect of government they feel called and led to, to run. If God has called and gifted you as a Christian and called you into that public sphere, do it. If God has called and gifted you to be a manager or to lead in some way in your company, that's fine. Do it as long as your priority stays on Christ. Listen, it is our job to bring Christian value in the light of Jesus Christ to any circle in which He has placed us. Listen, he put Queen Esther at the right hand of an ungodly king in Persia, and he put her there for such a time as she was there. And had she not had faith enough in Jehovah to risk her life for her people, who knows how they would have been saved. Hey, listen, whoever you are, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, God has placed you where you are. He has a purpose and plan for why He placed you there. He gifted you and called you and put you where you are. And I would say to you, do what you're supposed to do. But if they come to me and say, hey, would you run the police department? No, sir. Uh, I'm not interested. Would you run our court system? No, I'm not interested in that either. Would you run our garbage collection? No, but we would like to have an extra can. I mean, I'm going to just sidetrack a minute. You you know, um, years ago, uh, when we got our first garbage contract, it was X amount of money. And then the price of gas went up and they had a fuel surcharge. And then what happened is during the Trump administration, whether he did this or not, I don't know, all I know is gas prices went, went way down. And you know, the fuel surcharge never went away. So I might take the job for a day. But, but any aspect of government, it is not our place to run it. We do not have the same purpose. And so there should be a separation of church from the government. A lot of people are not aware that of the 13 original colonies, 12 of them had some colonial denomination. And if you were not a part of the denomination that was like in charge of that particular colony, you paid tax. Everybody in the colony did that went to that organization. And by the way, the one colony that didn't have that was Rhode Island, who was founded uh, by a Baptist guy named Roger Williams. And he founded it because they persecuted him in other colonies, and he didn't want to pay tax to them. And so the first place with true religious freedom was Rhode Island, because Baptists have always been freedom-loving people. Listen, we do not want to run the government. We do not want the government to run us. We want to be free. Listen, uh, if you want to build a building next to us and say that Jesus is not the Son of God and that the church is a waste of time, that's fine. That's your right to do it. You ought to be free to do it. God made us free. But I'm going to be free to stand behind this pulpit and say you are a heretic for saying Jesus is not the Son of God. And in Rhode Island, you could say whatever you want. All the Unitarians went to Rhode Island because they were free to say Jesus is not the Son of God. And every Baptist preacher in Rhode Island stood behind his pulpit and said that is ungodliness. That's our people. That's a separation of church and state. We have always believed that. And though it is a foreign concept to you and I as Americans, there are actually quite a few governments today who still tax their people to support a denomination of some sort. I'm told that Argentina, Costa Rica, Peru, Poland, and Spain still give constitutional privilege to Roman Catholicism. I'm told that Finland, Sweden, Norway, and Iceland still give privileges to Lutheranism in some way. In Germany today, if you claim to be a member of the Lutheran church, the Catholic church, the Jewish religion, or the evangelical church, uh, they will tax you Eight or nine percent, depending on where you live, and it will go to whichever one of those organizations you choose. And the only way to get out of that tax is to have your name removed from the membership rolls of those churches. Say, Brother Wally, wouldn't you love to see a Baptist tax in Cincinnati? No, I wouldn't. I would like God's work to be funded by God's people. Amen. And any believer who understands the Bible and what it teaches about the scripture and the church knows that taxing people to give to a religion is wrong. Amen. Biblical Christians should stand for the separation of church and state as those things are properly defined. Since the purpose of the church and government as established by God are very different, here's number two. We need to understand that we have a role as Christian citizens to fulfill. I don't know why, but I understand some Christian people are not even registered to vote and some who are registered don't even vote. I don't know if it's true. I was going to do a survey here and as I think I told you one other time, I didn't have the heart to do it. I mean, I heard that 40% of evangelical Christians and technically we're not an evangelical Christian, but we're thrown into that group. 40% of them are not registered and don't vote. And, and I was just curious uh, what that would be here. See, I, I have a problem. Because I'm your pastor, I see you through rose colored glasses. And from my perspective, I'm thinking 40%, those slop wads, man, a Bible Baptist church, 95% of our people are registered and they all vote. And I didn't, you can't stand the answer, you don't ask the question. But the thing of it is, is as citizens, we should promote Christian values and biblical roles at the ballot box in any place we have influence. Um, you may, it was many years ago, uh, they had a, a law uh, that was up for vote in Ohio on whether smoking should be prohibited uh, in um, private businesses. And at that time, we were in the UAW Hall, and for the handful of you that were here at that time... It was a smoke filled room. I mean, they'd been having two or three hundred smokers at bingo Thursday and Friday for decades in there, and the nicotine literally had coated all the walls brown. Literally. And this came up as to whether uh, or not, you know, smoking should be allowed in an environment like that. I I would get there early every Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning, I would open up all the windows. I would turn on all the blowers on the air conditioners. I would set out all these little uh, Renewsit anti-smoke things, and I would just set them out everywhere to to make it as best as I could. Uh, But when that vote came up, I I voted no. Because I don't think the government should be telling private businesses whether they can smoke there or not. Now listen, when it passed, honestly, in the inside, I was kind of glad. But I thought it was wrong. If the government wants to prohibit smoking on its property, have at it. But if the government wants to prohibit smoking on my property, shut up. That's not your place. We're supposed to vote, vote biblical values, whether we personally like them or not, like in that case. Uh, since the purpose of church and government is established by God is different, uh, number three, and lastly, we need to understand that both church and government need to fulfill their God-given roles. Listen, it's good for the government to be concerned about public safety, to maintain roads, police, and the rule of law. It's good for government to keep criminals away in a just manner from people and property they might harm. It's good for the government to promote free speech of all sorts, even speech we don't agree with. Listen, if, you, if you're the kind of Christian that thinks that free speech you don't like should be prohibited, you don't understand that as soon as you let the government decide what speech should be prohibited, it's just a matter of time before they come after us. It's good for a church to go with the gospel, baptize those who believe, teach those who believe what Jesus taught. A biblical separation does include the separation of the church and state. But we need to know and understand what the roles God designed are for both of them. And we need to support government being government and the church being the church. They're not the same. You'd quietly stand.